Hebrews 12 serves as, as our text today to launch us into our discussion. I'm going to read verses 3 through 11 of Hebrews 12 to get us started. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God has treated you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. These riches, these verses are rich in meaning, and we can spend a lot of time expositing them. But today we will just be able to highlight some of the concepts in these verses to guide us through our message this morning. But the good news is, we will be starting our series in Hebrews very soon, and we will look forward to a deeper dive into these, these verses when we get there. As Pastor Beasley shared last week, before we start our series on Hebrews, and as we are preparing for church membership, we are taking a few weeks to address areas that are applicable to the body as a whole. These refreshers are needful, as Pastor Beasley prayed about today. They're refreshers, they're like little checkups, making sure we're staying healthy. And yes, last week I heard someone tell me that message was convicting. This is a good thing. It means that the living and active Word of God is being preached it is piercing all of us, and it is discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, as promised in Hebrews 4.12. Our messages over the last two weeks have centered around the subject of membership, what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, and how we're to conduct ourselves within the church. One of the underlying themes crossing through the last two messages one that will carry into today's message is the theme of unity, that we are one body, that Christ is the head of that body. Two weeks ago, Pastor Beasley discussed the Lord's table and how we are to approach it properly 
giving it the time and attention that it deserves. And he discussed how when we partake of the elements of the Lord's table, we are confessing individually and collectively as the body that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for all of us. And how we are not to pollute the table by introducing sin to it. We could summarize that week's message like this. God takes the Lord's table seriously, and so should we. And last week we discussed what a spirit-filled church looks like. How we should conduct ourselves as people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That the unity we express as a body expresses the nature of God who is unified in his triune being and in his will. And we spent time in Ephesians 4.25, which reads, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And we looked at three concepts in that verse. First, we look at that concept of speaking truth. We looked at how we are made to be truth-tellers. How when we are born again, we are created in righteousness, equal in value, and unified in the truth. We looked at how we must guard ourselves against the disease passivity that has plagued the modern church, and how instead we are to be active members, givers, seeking ways to exhort one another. Second, we looked at how we don't stop at speaking the truth. We must actively forsake falsehood. We looked at the things the Lord detests in Proverbs 6, and how three of the seven of those have to do with our tongue. And in Proverbs 17.4, we're reminded that we are to guard ourselves against even listening to falsehood. And third, we looked at how we are members of one another, the body of Christ, with only one member serving as the head. And we are reminded in the book of James that we are to avoid speaking against one another or to judge one another. But we are to strive to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And how the way Paul uses the words members one of another to convey reciprocity. This morning, we're going to continue in this discussion. Because if we are truly members of one another in the body of Christ, we are to be actively stimulating one another to love and good deeds. We must understand how church discipline is a component of love and good deeds. More than that, church discipline is a right and privilege of every member of the body of Christ. A few months ago, in one of the announcements I made regarding church membership, I said, when I chose to become a member of this church, one of the reasons is because I was choosing you, this body, to hold me accountable to my faith. And that, in that reciprocity, I would be holding you accountable to your faith. This is the concept that we started to look at last week in Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. Being members one of another means that we are actively working to see to it 
that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as we're doing. With this in mind, today we're going to talk about discipline. And I didn't see my kids bolting for the door, so that's a good thing. But specifically, we're going to talk about corrective church discipline. Because in verses 3 and 4 of the Hebrews text today, the author urges us not to grow weary to persevere in resisting sin. And then he goes on to cite Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. We are not to regard discipline lightly. And just as Pastor Shear regarded the Lord's table, God takes the Lord's table seriously and shows you we. The theme of today's message can be summed up, God disciplines the ones he loves, and so should we. This morning, we're going to look at why church discipline is necessary and loving, and then go over the instructions that the Word gives us regarding discipline. First, it's helpful if we look at the word discipline itself. The root word of discipline is disciple, which comes from the Latin word discipulus, meaning student. When we hear the word discipline, or when we hear the word disciple, what or who comes to mind is Christ's disciples, right? We think of the followers of Christ, Jesus' disciples. But actually, disciple means student, as in one who studies. The disciples of Christ are students, and they're students of the perfect teacher. Hebrews 12 continues with this idea of discipline being a result of God's loving parent-child relationship with us. He disciplines because he loves us, because he has received us into his body as adopted children. Verse, verses 7 through 10 of Hebrews 12 go on to describe this idea of how we would not be his children if we were not disciplined. And the author helps us to understand this by asking, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? How many of us look back into our childhood and say, thank you, God, for putting parents in my life who gave me discipline? As I read this portion of Hebrews 12, I started thinking about my own father. My father went home to be with the Lord just a couple years ago. And my sister and I were blessed enough to be at his bedside in his final hours. And after we prayed with him, and as he knew his time was drawing near, my sister crawled into bed with him and laid her head on his chest. And he said the last words that he said on this world. He said, was I a good father? And we had this beautiful time as he kind of just faded away of just recounting how he was a good father, how he was a provider, how he was dedicated to his marriage through thick and thin. 
and we shared how he lived out his faith and how he was an example for us. But then as I read these passages, I realized he was a good father because he disciplined. Galatians 6 reminds us that this is not just the duty of parents. As God's children, members of his holy family, we are to do this for each other. God uses the body of Christ as his instrument of correction. Consider this verse in the first part of Galatians 6.1. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We are to be active participants in the restoration of the brothers and sisters if they fall into sin. Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Brothers and sisters, if we love each other as we should, if we truly live out the reality that we are more than just people who gather here on Sunday morning, if we are truly identifying ourselves as siblings, eternal siblings, bound by our identity in Christ, then we need to love each other enough to hold each other accountable for our sins. Discipline in this regard is a blessing. It's a blessing to love someone enough to provide discipline as a father loves a son. And it's also a blessing to receive it. When we exercise church discipline, we maintain the honor of God in the church. We participate in the restoration and perseverance of the members of the church. And we advance the purity and health of the church. And we deter others from sinning. Hebrews 12 verse 11 concedes that discipline is not pleasant. It says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And because it seems painful, we naturally want to avoid it, don't we? We avoid it, and many churches avoid it as well, as a symptom of the disease of passivity. But here's the alternative. If we fail to conduct discipline biblically, the result is broken relationships, divorce, congregations torn apart, misery, and as one author put it, the infectious toxin of unrepentant sin that circulates in Christ's body of believers. It seems painful, but the end of Hebrews 12 verse 11 says that discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Righteousness is conformity to God's character. This is the ultimate objective of church discipline. Restoration of a brother or sister to being someone who is no longer in sin, but is conforming to Christ's character. Here's the way to think of biblical discipline. It's God's loving instruction, correction, and training for our good that we may share in His holiness and yield the peaceful fruit of His righteousness. And as our true Father, in His loving way, He provides us instruction in His Word for church discipline. These are found in several passages, but today we're going to look at Matthew 18, 
Matthew 18, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And verses 15 through 18, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So, we're going to step through this process. But as we step through it, consider that the reason we are reviewing this is because we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Just a few verses before in chapter 16 of Matthew, Christ is sharing something else with his disciples. He is sharing that he is going to build his church. If you recall in verse 18 of chapter 16, he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So just a few chapters later, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and this is before the church is established. Christ is telling them, here's something that you're going to have to do. You're going to have to do this, and this is the way to do it. So as we step through these verses, we do so knowing that Christ had a purpose, that he provided these instructions that we are to exercise this process commanded by him. He knew that this would be needed in the future for the church. And we know that it was needed in ours recently. His purpose is, preserve, is to preserve the unity and purity of his bride, the church. Amen? Beginning in Matthew 18, Christ says, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is step one. Let's start with the first word, though. If. What do we consider as a criterion to determine if we need to go to our brother? Do we have to go to our brother or sister with every little offense? No, we don't. Proverbs 19.11 tells us that good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Not all offenses are sins. Our standard of sin is not determined by our feelings or perceptions. Sin is determined right here in the Word of God. Paul spent some time discussing this in the letter to the Roman church. At the end of chapter 13, he gives us examples of how we are to cast off sin. Ending with this in verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. But then in the next chapter, in Romans 14, he describes examples where we will experience differences of opinion like food, or observance of days. 
In the modern church, it may be the way music is played, or preaching styles. In these things, we are to bear with one another in love. But, if your brother sins against you, we have instructions. But first, we want to make sure we're doing this right. What's the criteria for going to someone to confront them with sin? Here are some questions to consider before rebuking someone. And I'm going to give you scripture references along with these questions. I'm not going to read the scripture references. So if you're taking notes, just jot them down, or I can give them to you after the service. But let's look at these questions. These are questions to ask ourselves before we go to our brother or sister with sin. The first one, is my life free from similar sin? That's Romans 2.1 and Matthew 7.1-5. If you remember Matthew 7.1-5, that's where Jesus is warning us not to judge others. Second question, is my motivation restoration and not condemnation or revenge? Galatians 6.1. Third question, would I be willing to be rebuked in the same way in which I'm about to rebuke my brother? Matthew 7.12. Fourth question, do I have a clear scriptural basis, and am I rightly handling the word? 2 Timothy 2.15. Fifth question, have I prayed about this beforehand, and will I continue to pray about it after I rebuke my brother? Matthew 26.4 and 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Number six, we discussed this earlier, is this truly a sin and not just a matter of my personal preference? Ephesians 4.2 and Romans 14. Last question. Am I acting in genuine love for my brother? 1 Corinthians 13.1 and Romans 12.9 and 10. If the answers to these questions is yes, Jesus commands us, go. Go and tell him his fault. And this is where the unpleasant part comes, because we have to tell him the truth. But again, we have to do so out of love. Rebuke them. The goal is to get them to understand that they have sinned. And even mature Christians have difficulty with this. Amen? And because it's difficult, we allow unbiblical beliefs to go unchallenged. Out of politeness or keeping the peace, which ends up just being a false peace. A sign of maturity in a Christian is the ability, ability to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15, talked about it last week. In doing so, we must guard ourselves against speaking love without truth 
or truth without love. And guarding ourselves against love without truth, we must be clear. We are rebuking sin. Titus 2.15 says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. We are speaking against sin. We must be direct and we don't sugarcoat the truth. At the same time, we have to guard ourselves against speaking truth without love. Love is the whole reason we're going to our brother and sister in the first place. It's because of love that we are rebuking them. And it's easy to beat someone up for an obvious sin, but our purpose, again, is not retribution. It's not revenge. It's not to prove we're right or anything else other than to make them aware of their sin and call them to repentance. Back to the next concept in Matthew 18, this first step of going to our brother. Verse 15 continues, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. We are to do this alone, privately. We don't gossip, we don't slander, we don't tell anyone else what's going on. Because often, when we talk to our brother, it turns out to be simply a misunderstanding. That no sin was intended, and after you speak with them, you realize, you know, we're fine. If it's not a misunderstanding, you rebuke your brother or sister, and you explain your case as necessary to prove to them that an offense has occurred. And Christ tells us in the rest of verse 15, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Well, what's this mean, gaining your brother? First, gaining a brother means that there's confession of sin before God. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us all in righteousness. Again, we have a condition here. This verse starts with an if. It's the forgiveness God extends to us is conditional upon our confession and our repentance. Sin remains unforgiven unless it is confessed and is repented of before God. And that's because when we are confronting a brother, we need to realize something. Our sin, or your brother's sin, or sister's sin, is first and foremost against God. In Psalm 51, David declares, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Although David had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, his sin was primarily against God. Any sin committed is a sin against God first. No matter how offensive it is to us, it is infinitely more offensive to God. Second, just as forgiveness results in a restored relationship with God, our forgiveness results in a restoration of the shared unity we have as siblings in Christ. That is getting your brother 
The goal is restoration. I just read Galatians 6.1, I'm going to read it again. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. If you have gained your brother and sister, or sister, after going to them, in this may, in this way, you're done. This is our hope. And all that was in step one. And we spent so much time there because if we understand how to do this with each other in a biblical manner, if we understand how to properly provide biblical discipline, and just as importantly, how to receive biblical discipline, we quickly resolve these instances and can be about the ministry of building each other up and doing what we're called to do in the church. But if an unreconciled state persists, if we're rebuffed, then we proceed to step two. Matthew 18, verse 16 says, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. At step two, we must again ask some questions. The criteria, what are the criteria for involving more witnesses? First, are we convinced of unrepentant sin? Second, have we allowed some time for the Holy Spirit to do work in our brother or sister to convict them of that sin? Third, have we tried different approaches with increasing urgency to help them see their sin? Because Jesus' instructions are based on a refusal to listen. And there's a difference between a failure to understand and a refusal to listen. So before we get to the step of bringing in witnesses, you may have to change your approach. As long as you're having a conversation, it's not a failure to listen. It's once the discussion ceases, when it can go no further, when you're effectively told, that's all I want to hear from you, or I'm not going to listen anymore, or I don't agree that I'm in sin, when sin has clearly been established by the word. A refusal to accept sinful behavior and a refusal to repent, that's the definition of a refusal to listen. That's the criteria for moving forward with witnesses. When he says every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses, Jesus is confirming the principle established in Deuteronomy 19.15, which reads, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in correction with any offense he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Taking two or three witnesses still keeps the matter private as possible, but it also confirms that the issue is valid and not just a matter of opinion and gives both parties the opportunity to make their case to the witnesses. And here again, the witnesses are not here to take sides. There's only one standard for establishing sin, the word. Therefore, there's only one side. 
So care should be taken to bring witnesses who rightly handle the word of truth. If the witnesses agree that the accused is participating in sin, they too establish the charge, again, with the goal of the brother or sister coming to accept the reality of their sin, followed by repentance and restoration of the relationship. The goal from the first step remains to gain a brotherhood. And then we are told in the first part of verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is the third step. And again, we have questions to ask ourselves before continuing this process. First, are the witnesses convinced of unrepentant sin? Have we allowed some time for the Holy Spirit to do his work of conviction after the witnesses have spoken? Have the witnesses tried different approaches with increasing urgency to help our brethren see their sin? Again, it's the refusal to accept sinful behavior and refusal to repent that is the refusal to listen. In Christ's plan, more and more people become involved in seeking the restoration of the individual. And there's an increase in the urgency for them to repent. By this stage, the elders should be involved, especially if the matter is to be brought before the church. This is to be overseen by the eldership. The elders will decide if this should be discussed and disclosed only to the members of the church and how detailed the disclosure will be. The elders will provide clear instructions regarding how this person is to be treated while they are undergoing church discipline and whether the person under discipline will be allowed to partake in the Lord's table. They will counsel you on how to pray for this person's repentance. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14-15 says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. At this stage, we are to use our interactions with our sinful brother or sister in the same spirit. We are not regarding them as our enemy. But as the body of Christ, we are there to warn them. We are there to get our brother or sister to accept the reality of sin, to seek forgiveness and be restored. And our interaction will be limited. And again, this is not easy. It's painful. But discipline requires care and courage. But it is a, it is a privilege that we must partake of to restore brother and sister. And it's Christ's provision in this regard is a blessing. Just as we witness with the gospel in our personal testimony to friends, co-workers and strangers, church discipline is the testimony of the church. We are preserving and protecting the name of Christ with the church and to the world. We are saying to the world that this church says no to sin. Otherwise, we look just like the rest of the world. And we may as well just be at home watching football. 
Christ provided these instructions for our benefit, knowing the church would need them. In the last part of Matthew 18, verse 17, it says, And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, we have criteria established. The refusal to listen. This is the fourth and final step. And it's a serious matter. This is why more and more people were involved. It was with increasing urgency. Letting the simple party know the danger of not repenting. And this too seems painful. But this is what Paul speaks about in 1 Timothy 1.20 when he removes Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says it's for them to learn, not to blaspheme. When Christ says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, it means we are to treat the sinful party as an unbeliever. Notice it does not say because they're an unbeliever. We do not know if they're saved or not. As Matthew simply reminds us, we are not their judge. God alone knows the heart. But Christ tells us to treat them as a believer. In doing this, we are hoping that in being absent from the body of Christ and treated as a believer, that they will understand the gravity of their sin seek repentance. Why does Jesus use Gentiles and tax collectors as an example? Because Gentiles and tax collectors were not allowed into the heart of the Jewish community or to participate in their religious life. But the goal, even at this step, remains gain your brother. We should also be aware that just as we discussed in the tail end of our series of Philemon, not all that are in the church are our brothers or sisters of Christ. When we discuss this in our tail end of Philemon, we use the example of Demas, and we looked at the example of Judas. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is talking to the elders of one of the first churches, the church in Ephesus, and he says this to them. In verses 28 to 31, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Then he says this, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing your flock. And from among your own, your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert. So here we have Paul. He's establishing the first churches. Their elders were being instructed directly by Paul. And it doesn't get better than that. Imagine if you asked me a question. And I said, hmm, hang on a second, let me go ask Paul. Yet he tells him this, After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves men will arise, 
speaking perverse things to draw the disciples away. Notice that Paul does not say wolves may. He doesn't say wolves might. He says wolves will come in among you. From your own selves, men will arise to draw away the disciples. He's not saying be on guard because this might happen. He's saying be on guard because this will happen. And Christ gave us these instructions in Matthew 18 with full knowledge that the church would have to use this process to exercise discipline. But let's also consider the case in 1 Corinthians because at first glance, it looks like Paul is telling the church to ignore steps one through three and just go to the fourth, removal from the body. In chapter five of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes in verses one and two. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather warn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. And he continues to explain their error in failing to confront this sin in the rest of the verses. And then he concludes this in verse 13. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul commands the church to remove the man from among them. And just as instructed by Christ, step 4, verse 17 of Matthew 7, he is to be treated as a non-believer and is not welcome in the congregation. So why did Paul step, why did he jump to step 4? First, because the whole congregation knew about it already. Second, because the church should have already dealt with this sin. And third, because they were prideful, even arrogant, about this sin. Paul reminds them that even a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Allowing this sin to persist would allow it to spread to the whole congregation. And because they were proud, and they were not seeking to discipline this person, removal was the only option. So as we leave the disciplinary process in Matthew 18, we often are left with wanting to know what happens after a person is removed from the body. Because we all want closure. We all want the happy ending. But we're often left not knowing, aren't we? Well, this is what I'm going to close with. Because of church discipline, we see a parallel with sharing our faith. When we share our faith, we don't always see an outcome. We share the gospel with our friends, co-workers, and relatives. But we also share it with strangers, people on a plane we're never going to see again. I've shared it with an Uber driver while we were on the way to the airport. I don't know if he was listening just because he wanted a good review. But I knew I wasn't going to see him again. We share the gospel not knowing 
what Christ is going to do with you. We don't know if they're saved or not, if they're going to be saved or not. We pray with them, we give them a Bible, we share the gospel, but in the end, it's Christ's territory. Only he knows their heart, and we trust that he's going to take what we shared, and maybe what other people share in the future. And if they're chosen, the Holy Spirit will convict their hearts, cause them to repent, and accept their need for a Savior. And brothers and sisters, this is the same way we have to look at church discipline. We are called to do what we must. Just as we are called to share our faith, we are commanded by Christ, if our brother or sister sins, to go. We are called to keep them accountable, whether it's one-on-one or as the body of Christ. And like sharing our faith, whether it's step one, two, three, or four, in Matthew 7, we trust in God to do his mighty work of conviction, salvation, and sanctification. It's not a work of our doing. And even if they are removed from the church, we do so with a purpose that they would be convicted of their sin and return to the loving arms of their Savior. Whether sharing our faith or providing correction, our goal is that they would only see Christ. Second Corinthians gives us hope in this regard. Regarding a man who is disciplined by the church, Paul writes in verses 6 through 8, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, that he may be overwhelmed, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. This man responded to the discipline of the church, and he was restored to them. The last two verses of hymn number 350 remind us of our need to be courageous in our calling as Christians. Verses 5 and 6 of this hymn read, May I run the race before me, strong and brave, to face the foe, looking only unto Jesus, as onward I go. May his beauty rest upon me, as I seek the lost to win, and may they forget the channel, seeking only Him. Let's rise, and the pastor is going to lead us in our closing hymn.